Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Nun Aleph. Today's shir is for Le'ilu Nishmas Leora Bas Tzvi and Rivka Bas Yaakov. May their neshamas have an aliyah and may their memory be a blessing. Um, so we're going to go from the second line of Nun Aleph Amur Aleph, 51a. The Gemara is continuing with the, what it's built on the previous discussion. Remember yesterday we mentioned um, this that a daughter is sustained from the estate and this that a son inherits the value of his mother's ksuba is only collected from karka, from land, not metal, they're not movables. So with that in mind, it says, There was a young orphan and a brother and sister orphan who came before Rava. Now the problem is, so the son inherits all the property, but obviously, as a, as a generally, when, very often when we use the word Yosom, we're referring to a mana, so he's going to have a apitropos, a guardian, someone managing his uh, the estate and his finances for him. Um, so these they came before Rava. It says, Omar lahu Rava, helulu Yosom bishvil Yosomo. Increase what you give the Yosom, so that he could give his sister something. Now the difficulty about that, firstly, okay, for the orphan himself, it's all his property that he inherits from his father. But for the mana girl, she's only supposed to collect for her sustenance from metaltalin, from, from karka. He says, He says, but Robert, it was you yourself who told us that you can only collect from karka and not metaltalin. So, whether it's for the sustenance of the girl, whether it's to pay out the ksuba, or whether it's for the dowry, it can only be collected from land. So, he says, well, let's say this young boy needed a maid, needed a nurse to help him. Would you not tell the Apitropos to provide that for him? So so here we have the double benefit. I Obviously, if him and his sister are staying at home, she's going to help a bit. So if you would be prepared to hire in, to bring in extra help, external help and pay them, you should definitely be prepared to pay the sister for the little, the help she does around the house. And that it's his sister and she is deserving of sustenance from the estate. So that's how Rover got around this issue. Very interesting, it's come out fairly clearly that for all these items, uh, Mazonas, Parnosa, that's the dowry, and uh, the Ksuba are all collected from Karka. If a state, the, the father could leave hundreds and millions of uh, Metaltalin, but if he doesn't have any land, they'll have nothing because they would only be allowed to either sell the land or use the profits off the land to make, to provide for themselves. Tosfos, I'm not going to do the whole Tosfos. There's a big machlok as we're showing him on exact mechanisms here and stuff, but just if you go towards the bottom of Tosfos mi mekarkai, so it's the second Tosfos on the page, third last line. He says, It appears that nowadays the Kulu government they all collect from Metaltalin, Suba, Mazonos, where is this? Mitakonos Hagoinim, from an institution of the Goinim. I'll tell you that shortly. Or Parnosa Nami, and regarding the dowry as well. Anan Sahadi, Shekobna Odom Regilim, Hisa Benosei, Mimetaltalin. Since 
We, we, Anan Sahari means we can basically testify about it. Every single person gives his daughters part of the dowry is metaltalin. He's going to give her some movable articles. It's not only land that he gives his young girls, uh, his daughters when they're getting married. He gives them metaltalin. And Shekol B'nai Orem Regilim Nahasi Ibn Osem Adaliyah V'chashiv Kamoi Ba'amidnai The Posigravakri And then it appears like that that's how they would evaluate the father. Remember, the Ksuba yesterday's daf, we said they evaluate what would the father like, how much do you give a daughter as a dowry from the estate? We said the father, how much the father, how much we estimate the father would give. We see, was he a generous person? How did he dote on his daughters, etc.? And we try make an assessment based on that. So if every single father distributes it as Matal gives his daughter Matalin, we can be confident this father would also give as part of the dowry Matalin. That's what Tosa seemed to be saying. But very interesting. So the Ka'inim were the standard, I guess, historical errors, obviously not going too far back, but from the time of the Gomorrah there was the Tanoim. Those are all the sages that we mention as a Tana, as someone as part of the Tanaic era, that's from approximately the year zero to the year 200, again, if this year is 2022. Um, and th- those are the Tanaim, the Mish- Mishnah sages. Then we have the Amoraim, the sages of the Gomorrah. That's approximately from the year 200 to the year 500. But I'm actually... Um, and then there's what's called the Savorayim. They're an uh, interim period. They're like still learning in the Babylonian yeshivas, many of them under the Amoraim themselves, and they, in a way they seem to have finished off Rav Ashi's editing. And then after that's the Ga'inim. So that's before the Rishonim. I don't know exactly what year they say the Ga'inim were from, but like the Rif, uh, Rav Alfes, around the year 950 or so, is the end of the Ga'inim, the transition into the Rishonim, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And before that, for, I don't know how, is the Go'onim. So they are, I mean, you've heard of Rabbeinu Gershom. He's often quite classified as a Go'on. But here, one of their Takonis is that they can collect from a Tautalin. That Tashulchan Aruch Paskin might be for a slightly different way of looking at the issue compared to Tosus. But it seems the standard is that nowadays, you would collect from Metaltalin. That's the Go'onim. I'm actually listening to a fascinating shir on the formation of the Talmud Babli. Where he says, like all the, the the classical understanding, you know, the the classical take is that Rav Ashi compiled and edited the Gemara, very similar to what Rebbe done for the Mishnah. We know the Mishnah. We know Rebbe came. They were all different Tanaic teachings, and Rebbe came and took the took it together, summarized it, condensed it, put it into a system, and basically edited it. Um, you know, edited and compiled and edited the Mishnah. So some the, the classical understanding. This is how I always learned was that uh, Rav Ashi did that to the Talmud Babli. But this rabbi I'm listening to has a whole lot of proofs that that just doesn't work. <coughs> so there are many Amorayim and there are many statements in the Gemara that are clearly from a bit later on, from sometimes even up to 200 years later after Rav Ashi, or 100 or something. So uh, the exact formation of the Talmud Babli, if you think, is an interesting exercise, in its, uh, interesting study in its own right. I mean, we spend hours and hours learning it, but... Who wrote it? How's it put together? How did it come together? Who the different? Uh, how do the different sages feature? Do you notice half of the, I, I don't know the exact percent, but half the Gemara is analyzing statements that we know who said them. Like we say, Rava says X, 
And then the Gemara anonymously will analyze it. Or, so-and-so having a machloikes, and the Gemara will anonymously analyze it. Who those anonymous... Uh, Who's that? So someone who said Rabashi, but that's not so clear. Cases. I mean, it's a fa- yeah, So it's a fascinating uh, thing to look into. The who wrote this book? Who put it together? Where's it from? Have we spending hours and hours studying, and we treat as the core of our uh, the core, of the foundation of all our religious uh, beliefs and practices. The Gemara is literally the the source, the root you go back for our ideas on faith, our ideas on religion, on uh, belief in God, and uh, all the way to halachas of how do you uh, bust your hands for a meal, how do you, uh, how do you deal with the ksuba, how do you deal with a, man, uh, a loan where someone's suing someone in court and he denies a loan from everything is all, the, 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 the Gemara is the foundation. Okay, but let's go on. So, Toner Abonan, Echod Nechosim Sheishle Machraz, Echod Nechosim Sheishle Machraz, whether you're speaking about land or whether you're speaking about metaltelin, we refer to land as Nechosim that have achrayos, Achrayos literally means like a responsibility, but that a bond takes effect on. So that's why they have achrayos. They can act as a guarantee. So if I want to, if you want to borrow money from me, I'm going to make sure that you have land in case you can't back, can't pay back, and then I'll, it will be bonded to me. Or if uh, I'm buying, if you're buying land, good securities make sure the guy has other land in case someone comes and takes it um, because you <coughs> didn't have a right to buy it, etc. So that's where we get the word achrayus, but she'eshlam achrayus is referring to land, and she'eshlam achrayus. Um, so how do you treat, so regarding these nechosim, whether they have achrayus, whether they don't have achrayus, moitzir, namozon, isha, ulevonos, you take from them to sustain, to support the wife and his children. Tivrei Rebbe, that's Rebbe's opinion. Rebbe Shimon Eloza, I mean Rebbe Shimon Eloza says no. He, he makes two different rules. He says regarding the Chosim Sheishlam Achrayos, Motzim Levonos Minabonim. We take to support and for the dowry for the girls from the sons, either sons inherit the estate and we take from them to give to the girls. Levonos Minabonos. And if they were just daughters, so what happens in a case where they're just daughters? They all equally inherit their father. So what happens if some girls took the state? Okay, there were, I don't know, there were, there were uh, girls who were 18 and girls who were 12, so the 18-year-olds took the estate. So then you take from them and distribute it equally. Similarly, will have him in our body. Sons from sons. If some of the sons took some of the estate unfairly, you'd make sure to take from them and redistribute it fairly. Will have him in our bonus. You also will take for the sons from what the daughters took. Again, if the daughters took some of the estate, you take it back and redistribute it amongst the sons who are the heirs. Again, this is where there's a lot of assets. Where there's a few assets, then you wouldn't. What's the difference if there's a lot or a few assets? So we know you calculate the sustenance for the young daughters based on the how much they'll need from now, from the time of death, how much support they'll need, uh, etc., um, their food and clothing, etc., from the age that their father dies until they become a Bulgarian, until they become an adult. So if there's enough for all the daughters to get that, plus more, <coughs> that's generally considered a large estate, uh, and their dowry. Plus that, that's considered a large estate, and therefore... The, the daughters will get that amount and the rest of the estate will be distributed amongst the sons. Anything less than that, well then it's going to all end up distributed amongst the daughters and the sons won't get anything. Does this, this apply to base towns as well? 
Um, Yeah, so, so strictly speaking, I mean, especially the adult daughters, they, they, you don't have to worry about them. They're the husband's problem. <laughs> yeah. At least uh, technically. <laughs> um, so the. Uh, but if, if there's yeah. a bigger state and the daughters, uh, you love your daughters. Hmm. So it's a then big, your, it's a big. Son and he grabs yeah. all the stuff, and the daughters might not have uh, wealthy husbands or whatever, so they lose out. Yeah. So it's a big discussion um, how to deal with the world nowadays. Strictly, the, the, the halachas of how Yerusha. Remember, here we've got two issues. We've got the standard Yerusha, I what the Torah says happens to the property after death, which is very set. Basically, it, what I guess it goes to pay off creditors. And then what's left over is distributed amongst the sons. The oldest son, if he's the firstborn, etc., will get a double portion. And then, you know, there's a very set. If there are no sons, then it will go to their children. If they don't have children, it will go to his brothers. Or, you know, there's a very set structure with the Yerusha. Now, what, what's made it a little bit more complicated is we've mixed in Takonis de Rabbonim to take care of his daughters and his wife. And some of them are clauses in the Ksuba, and some of them are separate institutions of Chazal. So that makes it a little bit more complicated, like what we're speaking about now, that they sustained till they become adults. Um, so that makes it a little bit more complicated, but yeah, that again, as we can see, is fairly set. And then what takes it a little bit more complicated is, what happens if you want to distribute it equally amongst all your children? Well, you see, your one, your one son's made it. He's uh, wealthy, he's uh, successful, and your other son's... Uh, a teacher, or he's in Kolel, yeah. or he just hasn't had the bracha. Yeah. So you want to give more to one son over the other. Or you've got uh, lovely daughters that you also want to uh, give some of the Yerusha to. So how to make a will, how do you make a will in Torah? Because again, as soon as the person dies, his assets are automatically considered owned by the by who the Torah says they go to. So let's say he has sons and daughters, they're automatically transferred to the sons. So you can't, what in secular society, what they have is a will, you can't, that doesn't work because the will kicks in after death. According to Torah, anything that happens after death is taking away from the sons. So you have to have a will structured that it's a gift while the father's still alive. And uh, there are ways, so, so, so I mean, in contemporary times, you have two issues to get around. One is how do you set up that document that your property is distributed, let's say, fairly amongst all your children, including your daughters. And then the second issue you have to get around is how to, how to resolve that with the secular courts, the South African government rules of uh, what happens. You leave your world, you leave your state to religiously win South Africa, you die into your state, the money goes to the other. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, so, so that... Yeah. That would mean if you if one dies without a will. Sorry? If you die without a will, is yeah. that intestate? Yeah. But isn't there there's a there's an automatic distribution, isn't there? That's so sure. I think it goes to the state if you die intestate. Sure? I thought it goes. Not so sure. Well, that's you're gonna have a drop. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm afraid to see this.
So that's uh, yeah. So, so I mean that's that's something you got to be careful. Also, I know like if you give a large gift just before death, then the taxes that the, the government don't like that, so it kick, it brings in all uh, taxes or SARS will come in audit, you know. So they, so the things you have to get around. But they do. So the one way of structuring a will, just uh, just to quickly mention it, it's more this discussion is uh, more for uh, elsewhere in Shasta. They discuss it properly. There's a whole chapter devoted to, to, to touching to discussing Yerusha. But the one way is they call it. Uh, I forgot what they call it. But basically, you tell your son, you write a document and you say to your sons, if you distribute my assets fairly. Then, then good. If not, then this document testifies that up to, and you say, then goes just to the girls. So you kind of say, I'm giving my full estate, or you can say much more. I'm giving 10 billion rand to my daughters, unless my son, unless you agree to distribute it equally. So now that that all that document's taking effect while the father's alive, and obviously the sons aren't going to take on a 10 billion dollar debt. So they'll say, okay, we'll distribute it equally, and then uh, so that's that's a way to structure it. But again, you still have to get around the uh, government loan and stuff, which also might not be such a problem uh, halakhically, but you have to just look into it. But unfortunately, in today's times, it causes a lot of malicious. Yes. There's no speaks afterwards. Uh, yeah. 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 No, so it's a big problem. No, you often, you sadly, like. Uh, um, can have best best of their siblings, and then as soon as it comes to money and Yerusha, it tears the family apart. So, so, that, so there has to be a very clear will, and it has to be done responsibly, sensitively, and uh, carefully. It's uh, it, it would be important for a father. Now, I've heard uh, when I heard, I'm trying to think who it was, Rav Shecht or someone speak about it. They mentioned that, like Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Moshe Feinstein, I just said uh, just distribute it fairly. That was kind of their command. But he said it's all very well for Rav Moshe, who was confident that his children would be responsible with it and not cause this parting. But he says anyone else would be playing with fire, and they should not actually do that. They should make it very set and clear to save the Machlokas. That's why I lost That's an interesting one that they give when you are, like we saw yesterday, when are you allowed to give more than 20% Sadaka? say from your estate. You should still leave to your children, but you're allowed to give more than 20% to Tzedakah uh, in, your, in your will. So like we learned yesterday. Okay, so let's carry. So, so, so this line again, we're saying according to Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, if you have no chosin that have arise, first you take from the daughters, um, if they took the estate unfairly, you take it from them and redistribute it amongst the sons. And similarly, if some of the daughters took the estate, you redistribute it amongst all the daughters. If some of the sons took the estate, you redistribute it amongst all the sons. You would take from the, from the sons for the daughters if there was a large estate. As we said, the daughters get their sustenance and their dowry and there's still estate left over. You take that and distribute it amongst the sons. But if there's a small estate, well then the daughters get it for their sustenance and dowry before the sons. What do you do with metaltalin? So you take from the you take from the sons for amongst the sons, and daughters amongst daughters. If he only has daughters, so the estate is inherited by daughters. You would also take it for the sons from the daughters. But you cannot take for the daughters from the sons. This is, um, as we've explained, um, as we've explained up to here, you can't take to support the daughters 
metatalin from the estate. You can only take land. So again, if, even though the father has a whole collection of expensive watches, can't take any of those to support the daughters. And that's Rabbi Shimon ben Elazo's um, opinion here. Again, he says, if the you would take from some of the sons to distribute it amongst all the sons, but that's Yerusha. They inherit, the sons inherit everything. And if they're only daughters, again, you distribute it. And if the daughters took the estate, well, you'll give it back to the sons. Again, we're all discussing the metaltalin part of the estate, the movables. But you would never take from the da- the, for the daughters from the sons. Even though generally we have a principle that the aloha is always like Rebbe over a colleague. So this is a makhloi. How do you do, how do you deal with the estate and give the daughter sustenance is a machlokes Rebbe and Rebbe Shimon ben Elazar. So generally we're passing like Rebbe. Hacha halacha Rebbe Shimon ben Elazar. To Amar Rava hilchas hamikar kaibelam yom tautle bain l'ksuba bain l'mezoyin bain l'paranacha. As Rava paskin, Rava is the Amoira, so he determines the halacha. He says you only take for karka, for sustenance, whether it's for the ksuba, whether it's for the sustenance, and whether it's for parnasa. Okay, let's go on to the next Mishnah. Loi of Loksuba. What happens if the husband never wrote a Ksuba? Now, at the moment, we're assuming that he didn't write a Ksuba, not out of, you know, didn't get round to it, but out of, he's kind of saying to his wife, I'll marry you on condition in the case of death or divorce, you don't get a Ksuba. Okay, that's, so that's what we're saying here. Loi of Loksuba, he did not write her a Ksuba, he wrote her or he, a Ksuba of less value. Or he wrote, didn't write the ksuba at all on purpose that she doesn't get anything. Still, if he married this girl as a basula, she will get 200. And if he married her as an almona, she will get 100 because it is a tanai, a condition on the marriage of Beisdin. The marriage is only effective if she is going to get a ksuba of 200. So as soon as he's married her, he owes her 200 even if there's no real ksuba, and even if he made an agreement with her, he said, I'll marry you, but instead of having the ksuba of 200, I want it to be 50. It's not, that's a tanai based in, he can't undersell her. So it's kosov lo sode shove mone tachas mosayim zuz, veloi kosov lo kol nechosim, ze isli achroin, le ksubasa, chayev shu tanai based in. What happens if he writes as a guarantee for the ksuba, a plot of land that's only worth 100 in place of the 200, and he doesn't write in the document, and the rest of my property, the rest of my assets, are also uh, what bonded to pay off the ksuba. So he didn't write that. So at the moment, if you read the ksuba carefully, all it's really saying is that she can collect from a field worth 100, which is 100 short. So what's the halach in that case? Chayev, he's still liable to the full 200. Why? Because it's a condition on the marriage of Beistin. Uh, he can't. All his property is automatically bonded to pay of the Ksuba of 200. New point. What happens if, remember we saw this a few days ago, that one of the conditions of the Ksuba is that he has to redeem his wife if she's captured. One of the conditions of the Ksuba. And we said for that, what does he get? He gets the Nirsay Maluk. He gets to use the produce and the rent, etc. from all the land she brings into the marriage. But again, he's, he didn't write that clause in the Ksuba. That if you're captured, I'll redeem you and return to you as my wife. Obviously a Kohen. If he's a Kohen, he can't remarry her once she's been captured. Because remember, a woman who, even if, she's, even if she was forced, she can't ever go back to her husband, a Kohen. 
a regular Israel again, if she commits adultery, I voluntary, then she can't go back to her husband. But if she was raped, she can go back to her husband. So that's generally included in the tzuba. Um But here, but a kohen can't. So he says, and I'll return you to your city, I'll return you home. So he didn't write that clause in the tzuba. Again, Chayel Shutzai Beisdin. He still has to obligate it to fulfill that clause because it's a condition Beisdin put on the marriage. Nishvis Chayel Leftoiso. What happened? If she is captured, he's obligated to redeem her. Vim Omar Harei Gitov Aksuba Tiftes Atma and Roshan. What happens? He says, you know what? I don't want to ransom you. He might even say, I don't want to get married to this. I don't want to return. I don't want you to return to me. You've been uh, defiled by your captors. Here's your get. Here's your Ksuba. Sort yourself out. Is he allowed to do that? Ainor Roshan, he's not allowed to. However, lots of another. We're going to contrast this with another boy. Lots of If she becomes ill, he's obligated for to uh, as a to heal her. Are you obligated to pay your wife's medical expenses? Could uh, save a good fortune nowadays that you take off uh, the medical aid and the uh, and the blood threshold and everything else. You could save yourself a fortune. No, you're obligated. To pay for your wife's medical expenses, and Omar Haregi talks over Tirfetz What happens if he says, "Look, things just not look. You know what? Your expenses have come too much. Here's your get. Here's your ksuba. You deal with the doctors. You deal with the medical bills." Rishai, he's allowed. So, so interesting enough, we saw he can't do that by a woman who's captured. He is a husband is obligated to pay for the medical bills of his wife, but he is allowed to say, "Look, uh, not working out. Take your here's your." Here's your get, here's your super you sort out the medical bills. He can do that. But by captive, if his wife's captured, he can't say, here's your super, here's your get, here's your super, you ransom yourself, you redeem yourself. He can't do that. Um, so just one point. Firstly, what is refuah? We haven't discussed it before. So Rashi learns refuah is part of Mazonas. This that you have to pay your wife's medical bills is the same as you have to make sure she has food and clothes, etc. So it's part of sustenance, basic sustenance um, medical bills. Others learn that it's a separate condition in the ksuba. I'm trying to remember a thought of at what the difference would be, whether it's a separate clause in the Ksuba or part of the Ksuba. Uh, might be, can he say, I'll marry on condition, I'm not responsible for your medical expenses? That could be a difference. If it's a condition if it's part of Mazonis, as we've seen, the man can't adjust the conditions that based in set in the Ksuba. But if it's referred, if it's a separate clause in the Ksuba, then he Maybe could, but either. But Rashi clearly learns here that it is part of Mazonas. It's part this that he has to look up to take care of his wife's financial needs. He also has to take care of her medical needs, and then you have to just clear what's the difference between um, redeeming her and paying for her medical expenses. That by redeeming her, you can say he can't say take your get and sub and redeem yourself, but by medical expenses he can. So the one answer that Tosas give is that he's already taken, from the moment they get married, he gets advantage from the flip side of that he has to redeem her. Remember, Chazal instituted that. He has to redeem his wife, ransom her, and therefore he also he gets the nichsei maluk. He gets to use the, her property. So as soon as they're married, he has that right to use her property. So his right to um, his right to uh, his, his responsibility to ransom her is already, has already kicked in from the moment he has a right to use her property. So that's why he can't now all of a sudden back up and say, I'm not going to ransom you. Yeah. Um, 
The, however, by Rafua, that's an ongoing expense, also counteracted by her, him ongoingly getting her what she earns, his earnings in place for her Mazonas. So again, that would be, that's constantly, I guess we could almost say, constantly reassessed. Every day, what do you need? Okay, here's what do you need, what do you need? Not, it's not fixed from the time of marriage. So that's why at some point you can say, look, it's just too much for me. Can't uh, afford the medical bills anymore. They said it in the Ketubah, and they that in sickness and in health and... Uh, Do you say in sickness and in health? Uh, I know they say that in oh, sickness so As long as he wants to... Again, we could say as long as he wants to remain married with her, then he has a responsibility to pay her medical bills, yeah. medical expenses. But if he decides to divorce her, then that's... Uh, yeah. Then he can. Yeah. But again, by the case of ransom, he couldn't divorce her instead of ransoming her. He has to ransom her. And then there's the added question in showing him, does he have to... So maybe once he's paid the ransom, then can he divorce her? The Rambam seems to imply that no, he would have to. Um, he would have to also take her back as a wife. Part of the condition of the Ksuba. If you are captured, I'll redeem you and take you back as a wife. That's another interesting point. Okay, now the Gemara is just going to analyze money. Who's the author of our Mishnah? Now, again, assuming that when the Mishnah said at the beginning he did not write her Ksuba, it was. It doesn't mean that he forgot to or didn't get around to. It means he. He said, look, I'm not writing you a ksuba, I'm not paying 200 in the case of death or divorce. And that was his son, let's get married, and we're not going to have a ksuba. That's what he said here. So assuming that, Rebbe Mayahi, our Mishnah must be Rebbe Mayahi. says, anyone who gives a basula less than 200 or an almona less than 100, that's Be'ilaz Nus. It's not, it's not as, it's a promiscuous relationship. It's not as if they are married. Okay, and so we see Rebbe Meir very clearly says, the Ksuba has to be 200 or 100. The wife is allowed to waive some of her ksuba. So it comes out very interesting. According to Rebbe Meir, you kind of, it's a, a husband and a wife are not allowed to be married without a ksuba of a, a minimum of 200, if it's a psula, or a 100, if it's thing. According to Rebbe Yehuda, it wouldn't be such a problem. She can write to receipt. She can waive some of the 200 or 100. So now, so, so that's the, that's why we want to say, our Mishnah, the first line of the Mishnah, which says, if he does not write a ksuba, she still collects 200. Then it says, aim a safer, but now if you go to a latter clause in the, in the Mishnah, you're going to run in, a, in trouble. It says, Sodesh of tonight What happens if in the ksuba, he said, I'm only bonding this field of 100 to your ksuba of 200, and he doesn't write that all my assets are bonded to the ksuba, he's still hired to use all his assets to pay for the ksuba because it's a condition that based in place. I, we're saying that if he leaves out or misrepresents the bond, I, again, as soon as he accepts it upon himself, they get married and they have this ksuba, all his property is bonded to pay that 200. So what happens if he writes a specific field is bonded to pay 100? We ignore that. 
We treat it as if all his property is bonded to pay the ksuba. So he says, Asan Rabbi Yehuda, that fits into Rabbi Yehuda, to Omar. Now, we're going to base this on another machrokes, I'll just say it outside, it'll be easier than when we read it inside. What happens if, in a regular case of a loan, we forget to write in the document, and my land is bonded to you. So I'm borrowing uh, 10 million rand from you, and we forget to write in the ksuba that if I can't pay you, my land is bonded. So the one, so that's If the soifer, if they left out the bond, the condition that my land is bonded to pay the loan, that's a mistake. I, we've, it is there, it just was left out by mistake. Because if you want to tell me that it's Rebbe Meir, he says if Achras is left off, it's not a mistake, it was done on purpose. So unless we specify in the document that my land is bonded to you, it's not bonded to you. So very interesting. So now we're confused. As, as, um, you know, just be, let's see it inside and then I'll explain the, the difficulty again. If someone finds a star so you're walking along and you find a loan document. Someone finds this document that says uh, Eli borrowed from Benji uh, 10 million rand. He finds it on the ground. <laughs> if it has Achraiz Nechosim, he's not allowed to return it to the lender. Why? Because Beisdin will use that document to collect um, from the Kuchin. If it doesn't have this part that the land is bonded, then you can return it to the milba because Beisdin won't use it to pay to pay back from Lekuchos. That's a contrary man. What he's saying, sorry, I should have explained this first, is, so let's say I borrow 10 million rand from you, and now my property worth 10 million rand is bonded to the loan. What happens if I subsequently sell that property, and then you come to collect your loan and I can't pay you back? You can go and take it from the Lekuchin. So therefore, if someone finds this document on the floor that says my land's bonded to you, and they return it to you, that's not so fair, because maybe for whatever reason the loan had been paid up or something like that, now you're going to use that document to collect from the kuchin. If it's just me, that's fine, because I should either have a receipt or torn up the document if I had paid you back. But if it's got a chrais written in it, then you can go and collect from the Lekuchin, which is not fair, so you're not allowed to return it. Whereas if there's no Achrayas written in it, then you can only collect from what I have, if it's not affecting anyone else, so you could return it. But that's again, do you see Rabbi Maz making a distinction whether you recorded in the document that my land is bonded to the loan. Whether or not it has this clause of the land is bonded written in, you can't return it because he can't pay from it. Again, what are we bringing out from this price? That Rebbe Meir holds the land is only bonded to the loan, and we want to say it's the same thing, the land is only bonded to the ksuba if it's recorded in the ksuba. Whereas Rebbe Uda would hold, it's it's automatically bonded. So now Reisha Rebbe Meir, the Seif Rebbe It seems that the Reisha is Rebbe Meir, the Seif is Rebbe Again, why is the Reisha Rebbe Meir? Because the first clause of the Mishnah said, if a man says, there's no, if the man says, I'm marrying you without a ksuba, we say the ksuba is automatically 200. It's an invalid marriage, if not. But basically, the, the marriage takes effect, and the, and the ksuba is 200. We see that you can't have less than a ksuba of 200. That should be Meir's opinion, because remember, if Yehuda holds, the woman can waive some of her ksuba. Comes along the safer of the Mishnah when it's discussing what happens if the man recorded in the document, I'm bonding my field worth 100 to the ksuba of 200. 
the Mishnah said that it automatically bonds all his property. We see that that's according to Rabbi Yehuda, that you go after what's specified in the document. According to Rabbi Meir, automatically everything you own is, whatever's written in the Ksuba, whether it is or isn't, or less or more, whatever you own is bonded to pay the Ksuba. So that's, really, so that's the, the first part, earlier clause is Rabbi Meir, later clause is Rabbi Yehuda. So the Gemara answer of a um so he says Rashi has a safer review. He says Vachita maybe you will suggest. Are we going to suggest an answer? We're going to refute it. Kula Rebbe Mehi v'shani lo Rebbe Meir v'engsulah shtare. Maybe it's all Rebbe Meir, and Rebbe Meir makes a difference, a distinction between a ksuba and other shtaros. By other shtaros, he says the document recorded is not the. It, 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 you go after exactly what's recorded in the, dome, in, the, in the document. But by Aksuba, the land is automatically bonded. He says, maybe you'll say that. He says, Rebbe Meir doesn't make such a distinction. And we're now going to bring a price that shows that Rebbe Meir doesn't make that distinction. There are three people, five, sorry, five cases where someone can only collect from freed property. I, again, that case of the loan. You can only collect from what I have as opposed to going after the lokeach. What are the five cases? So, peros v'shvach peros. That's basically where um, someone bought land, then it gets taken away from him because it turns out the person he bought it from stole it. It wasn't his to sell. So now he's lost, not only has he lost the land, which is definitely guaranteed, he's also lost all the investment he's put into the property. He fertilized it, he plowed it, he had produce growing that was now all confiscated when it was returned to the original owners. So all that he can claim from the person he bought the land from, but he, can't, he can only collect it from the, what the person has. He can't go get from Lekuchin, from other people who have bought other land of his. Whereas the actual value of the land, he can. The reason for that, and it's going to be the reason for a few things, is it's not a set value. So now, when you buy land from me or you go buy land from someone else, you can check what's the risk. Does he have creditors who might come and take the land? Has he sold land that is guaranteed that was a little bit of a dodgy sale, so someone else might come and take that land, and then he'll have to pay him back in a guarantee, which means the guy, because it was happened first, he can come to you. You can assess that. That's You can assess it, and you can assess the risk. But with these sort of things, there's no set value. How much did he invest into the land? You know, he took a swampy land, and he made a phenomenal development. So now... All he's invested into the land has gone up into the millions, millions and millions. So there's no set amount. Therefore, no, lock, no one buying that land or dealing with him has a way to protect themselves. So therefore, Chazal said, they can only collect from what he has and not what he's already sold. So that's Paris for Shach Paris. Hamakabel Olav Lozun es Ben Ishtol Bas Ishtol. If someone accepts, they say to, they're getting married to a woman who's been married before and she has children. He says, I accept upon myself to feed your sons and daughters. Again, that's only from what he has, again, because that's a debt that doesn't have a set amount. It says, Veget Chov Sha'ein Bo Achrayos. A get chov means a regular loan document without achrayas written in it. And a ksubasisha without achrayas written in it. Who's the opinion that holds that if the clause of my land is bonded to pay this 
debt or this ksuba is not considered a mistake, it's left out on purpose. Rebbe Meir, Vukhtani, ksuba sisha, and Rebbe Meir says ksuba sisha. So we see whether you, so Rebbe Meir clearly holds whether it's a regular loan document or a ksuba document that this person now owes. He owes to pay the ksuba or he owes to pay the loan. In both those cases, if it doesn't, if it's not recorded in the document that his property is bonded, it's not. So we see Rebbe Meir doesn't make a distinction between Yehuda. So we back to our original question. The first part of the Mishnah seems to be Rebbe Meir, and a later clause in the Mishnah seems to be Rebbe Yehuda. So Eboys Amir Rebbe Meir, Eboys Amir Rebbe Yehuda. You can actually learn it either way. Eboys Amir Rebbe Meir. You can explain as Eboys Amir Rebbe Yehuda. You can explain it as Rebbe Yehuda. Hasam Kasvalo his kabalti. Hachalo Kasvalo his kabalti. The case where he does, where he can't get away with less than two hundred is where he has no proof that she. He doesn't have a receipt that you waived the 100. So it's automatically 200. And whereas the case later on where he said the land for 100 covers the ksuba, even though the ksuba is written as 200, that's where he also has a receipt saying that she either waived or she's, he's already paid her the 100. So it's Eboy's Amir Rebbe Meir, or you can say it's Rebbe Meir. Where Rebbe Meir says he's hired to pay the full amount, that's not from encumbered property, property that's already been sold, that's from what he has on hand, which as we saw in the previous case, Rebbe Meir holds, obviously he can, she can collect from that. Okay, so that's that, that's resolving the Mishnah. Now it says, low cost of law, we said, what happens if she, if they didn't write the clause that he has to ransom her? Says, Omar so, and then we said, so he has to ransom her anyway. Says, Omar Aisha Shishrael that was raped is forbidden to her husband. We concern that the beginning was through Oynes and then it turned to Baratzon. Her first rape was forced and she didn't want to, but then she, uh, what's it, gave up on being saved or rescued and her subsequent or the end part of the rape was her was willfully and therefore she's also to her husband. So Aisivaira Rav Lavudishmul Rav challenge Avudishmul says We said one of the clauses in the Ksubi is that if you're captured, I'll redeem you and I will return you as my wife. We see that if a woman is captured, she can, she's raped, she can go back to her husband, unlike Avudishmul. So Ishtik he was silent. Kori Rav said about Avudishmul, I saw him Otru Bamilam um Great people, officers, government officials seal their lips or are at a loss of words. But Kafiyasimulapim and they place their palms over their mouths. I he doesn't he's he was silent, he he had a he he went speechless. He he, he could have answered. He didn't know what to say, but he could have answered. Why? Says my Islam, what should he have said that in this case he was surprisingly silent? that they're more lenient with a woman who's captured. Remember, we've discussed this in the past, I think a lot more in, uh, I don't know, it was earlier on in the Masechta, that if a woman's captured, we assume she's been raped. But it's not a given that she was raped. Unlike a woman who was raped. So he says, so you have that leniency that a shvuya can go back to her husband, but a woman who we know was raped would not be allowed to go back to her husband. Again, in case... As we'll, we'll see the reason shortly, but as we discuss. But the Torah says that a girl who is raped is allowed to go back to her husband. So where do we ever find that case according to Abu Shmuel? 
Again, as we've explained, when a wife of a Yisrael commits adultery, she becomes forbidden to her husband. Where she's forced, where she's raped, she's allowed back to her husband. It's the wife of a Kohenu, even if she's raped, she's not allowed back to her husband. But where does that principle ever apply? Because according to Shmuel, if you know a girl is raped, she becomes ostrich to her husband in case she changed to do it willfully. So how do you ever get that? So he says, no, Kogon to Kamri Adim, Shetzab Kamri Tchilavadzov. It's where the Adim, where Adim testifies, she was screaming out from the beginning to the end. Oh, so it's obvious in that girl's case, she was screaming and resisting till the end. It's clearly um, forced. But again, if in a normal, in a, in a rape where the girl guess was screaming and resisting and then kind of gave up, you would say maybe that was Berotan and should be also husband. Or Pliga de Rava, this is arguing on Robert. Oh, my Rava, even if it starts off as rape and then she does it willfully to the degree that he onmeres, even to the degree that she says, leave it, leave it, even if he hadn't raped me, I would have hired him. Uh, she's saying, I'm totally happy with what's going on now. Since it started as Oynes Muteres, she's going, oh, my time, why is she permitted? You tell me again, in the start of the rape, she resists and, and is upset and stuff, but then she gives in, and she's, to the degree that she's, I'm totally happy with it. You didn't tell me she's permitted to her husband, why is that? She says, no, Yetzer Alvashay. I think what this means is she gets wrapped up in her Yetzer. Once it started and once she's involved in the act, the... I guess the pleasure senses or whatever, the Yates might overpower her. But that's not at essence what she wants to be doing. In the act, she gets caught up in it and she's okay with the act. One, again, once, once she's like kind of resigned herself to it, then she's okay and maybe even happy with it. But that's not considered Baratzan because by then it's already uh, beyond uh, human uh, control. So Tanya Kabai said, Rob, and there's a Brisa in line with Rob. It says, Vahi loinit pasha, she was not forced. This is discussing where a woman's raped, etc. So it says, if she was not forced, Asura, that's when she's forbidden to her husband. If she was forced, Muteres, she's permitted. And now we make a drosha. It's a case of a girl who, even though she wasn't forced, she's mutar. Who is this? So that price lines up with Rava in its Rosh in the Posse. We're now going to bring a price that would be how Avur de Shmuel would learn it. Remember, he said that if it starts off by Oynes and ends off by Rotson, it counts as adultery and she's forbidden to her husband. So how would he read that Posse? It says, there's another price. If she wasn't forced, then she's forbidden to her husband. If she was forced, she's permitted. There's a case where even though she was forced, Asura, she's forbidden. So he's saying, we don't learn this possible to exclude a woman who started off from being permitted to her husband who started off and then went to Ratzon, we use it to exclude the wife of a Kohen who would always be also to her husband. Rabbi Yehuda in the name of Shmuel says from Rabbi Yishmuel, there's another way of reading that pasuk. It says, If she wasn't forced, Asura, then she's forbidden to her husband. Implying that if she was forced, Muteres, she's permitted to her husband. And there's another woman who, even though she was not raped, she's permitted. This is a woman who got married on a false premise. I, well, what means by that is, they made a condition. They said, if X is met, then we married. And the condition wasn't met. 
Kedusha Itoh. They were never married. So therefore she'll be permitted. Sha'afilu bono murchaval tefo. Even she has children on her shoulders. Mama'enes mo'ileches lost. She can just leave. Um, So that's uh, three ways of reading this posuk. Again, the, hilo, the, the standard, the easy part of the posuk is lonit pasha'ai. If she wasn't forced, then I, she committed adultery. She's also to ask me if she gets put to death. Um, if she was forced, well then she, then what, what do we mean by if she was forced? So depending on the thing, but simply if she was raped, then she'd be permitted to her husband. Um, but there's an added word, there's a vahi, and she, I in this case. So that's where we get to make the third drosha, either the he specifically she is also to her husband but a woman who started off with oinase and ended baratzen would be mutar to her husband or the other way of learning was no the he specifically she that becomes mutar to her husband but the wife of a kohen never becomes mutar to her husband or the third one was um what's it oh she's um it's specifically this woman that would be um that it would count as adultery, but a woman who got married based on a condition that was never met would not be considered married. Okay, let's leave it here for today. Have a very good Shabbos and a good Chodesh.